0: The following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. You can message us at threestrands.church contact. All right, welcome to the start of a new series at our church for today and the next two weeks after today. We're going to be a series called Baby Talk. How many of you took my advice last week and invited the biggest baby you know to come with you today? And they're sitting beside you right now. Yeah, all right, I see that. Uh, if you guys can't tell the difference between Raven and Gracie, they were matching out, I calling you out. I'm always able to call people out in my own life group. But I can't say what happens at life group. That stays there, but I can still call them out in church. So, All right, so I need your help. Can we all agree that babies, in general... In general, I know there might be some baby haters here, I don't know. But in general, babies do some things that are cute. Is that fair? In fact, they do a lot of things that are cute. I brought some of those examples today. I'll show you a few of them on the screen, okay? Here's the first one I brought. They stick their tongue out sometimes. That's kind of cute, right? I guess, okay? They uh, do whatever this is. I don't know what this is, okay? But that's kind of cute, I guess. I don't know. And then this is one from my own life. This is our daughter eating. They do that when they're eating, right? And that's kind of cute when they're eating and getting it all over them. Can you go back to that first one for a second? All right. This is cute when you're a baby. But you get into an argument with your wife or your husband, and this is what you do? It's not cute, is it? It's not cute. Let's go to that second one. This is cute when you're a baby. But if Kenny comes up here in the front and does that, women and children are running for the door. It's not cute. It's disturbing, right? Right? Let me see that third one a second. You eat and you get the food all over your face. That's kind of cute. But if you're out to eat with your family and other tables are looking at you and that's what your husband looks like at the table, it's not okay. There are lots of things that babies do that are cute that at some point in your life aren't cute anymore. And there's a whole list of those. In fact, I would say almost everything a baby does is cute but at some point isn't cute anymore. I made a quick list off the top of my head yesterday. Just 10 things I could think of to add to that that are cute when you're a baby, but when you become a grown adult, they're not cute anymore. You see if you agree with these, ready? Sucking your thumb, it's cute when you're a baby. But you go out on a first date with somebody and dessert shows up at the table and they start sucking their thumb, you're out. Second date's off the table, right? Passing gas, cute when you're a baby, everybody giggles. You're in the car alone with Chase. It's not funny. It's not cute anymore. I'm just saying. How about throwing your food? That's cute when you're a baby. Not when you're an adult. It's not funny. It's not cute. Putting your clothes on backwards. Biting someone. Everybody laughs when a baby does that. Chad bites me. It's not funny. It's not cute. How about walking around in only a diaper? Also, not okay when you become an adult. Making random noises during the church service. Right? It's not okay when you're an adult. Don't do that. How about staggering when you walk? When you're a baby, that's cute. When you're an adult, that means something totally different, doesn't it? It's not cute anymore. Baby comes into the living room staggering, cute. Dad comes through the door on a Friday night staggering, alarming, right? How about playing with imaginary friends? We hear our kids playing in another room. They're acting all kinds of things else. That's cute. I hear my wife talking to herself. In the other room, I'm calling somebody. It's not good, you know? How about sticking your fingers in the birthday cake? That's cute when you're a baby, but I don't want to share the birthday cake with anybody who sticks their fingers in it. I'm just saying, it's not cute anymore. That's the case with almost everything babies do. It's cute. But at some point, you got to grow out of it. And if you don't, it's just not going to be cute anymore, is it? So I was at Walmart this week go to Walmart every week now, just about, feels like. And I was walking through the aisle, and in the aisle with me, there was only one other customer. It was a mom, and she had her child with her. It really wasn't a baby. It was probably like a toddler, I guess you'd say, because it was probably about two years old, in the cart with her. And the baby was just wailing. The, the toddler was just wailing, throwing a fit, complaining, crying, doing it. Kids kind of do in the grocery store, I guess, or whatever. And God loved the mother. She was trying everything she could do to get the kid to stop. She didn't try what I would have tried, but she was trying everything she could try. You know what I mean? So she was trying everything she could try to get that kid to stop, threatening it, you know, saying, please stop, you know, calm down, trying to ignore it even some, a little bit. But the kid wasn't having it. The kid was still going to have their way. And uh, if his mom didn't pay attention, he was going to get louder, scream louder, throw a And there was somebody else in the aisle with us, but it wasn't another customer. It was an employee. So in the aisle, there's me. There's this mom with her kid. And I'm thinking all kinds of ungodly things about the kid. You know what I mean? Like what I'd do if I kept five minutes alone with the kid and that kind of thing. Um, And so uh, there's me. And the Walmart employee is like right across the aisle from me. Like we're real close to each other. The mom and her toddler are about 10 or 15 feet up in front of us, right? And Chad, I'm saying, I was thinking all kinds of things about this mom and the kid. I was, I was pre-qualifying, kind of a bad parent she was, you know, all this stuff you do when, you, when it's not your kid, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm listening to this kid just get louder and louder, and I'm thinking all these things in my head that I would try, that I would do, wondering if I should suggest something to her. That usually doesn't go over well, just for the record, if you walk up to a stranger and suggest how to deal with their child. But, um, and, and then the Walmart employee beside me said something. And if I made a list of 180 things that I was thinking in that moment, what that employee said wouldn't have been on the list. That employee goes, isn't that cute? And I was like, I almost took the employee aside. And I was like, I need to speak with your manager. (laughs) Because if you think that's cute, we got a problem here. It's like, that was anything but cute to me, right? It's weird how like some things are done by little kids and you kind of like just chalk them up to cute, but then you grow up, and those things aren't cute anymore. It's cute to live at home with mom and dad, but not necessarily if you're 38, right? There comes a point where it's like, hey, kind of move out, you know? It's cute to say kind of off color, off the wall things when you're one and a half years old, but if you're out in public, and you're 35 years old, it's really not okay to be pointing out all the imperfections and everybody else in the restaurant or in the grocery store. That's really what this series is about. How do we grow up, but not when it comes to sticking our thumb in our mouth or eating more neatly or or the way we talk, you know, uh, baby talk or anything like that. But really when it comes to our spiritual walk, our faith. And so uh, I want to, like, dig into this with you. I'm going to look at one verse each of the three weeks. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. I would challenge you guys to memorize it over the next three weeks of this series. You've got 15 days. You only have to learn, like, two words a day to memorize this. It's, like, simple, right? But uh, here's the verse. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. I don't know that there's anybody in the room that would disagree with that. I don't know, unless they're just, I don't know, unless they got like Peter Pan complex and they're just not going to grow up, I don't know. But almost everybody would agree with that on some level. That when you're a kid, you speak and you think and you reason one way, but then at some point, you got to grow up and put away some of those childish things. All right, so I got to give you some background because we don't want to take this out of context. So this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is often called in Christian circles the love chapter, all right, the love chapter, Uh, because Paul writes this whole chapter about what real love looks like, okay? Now, this is near the tail end. He kind of gets to this, and he says, hey, when I was a kid, I acted one way. When I grew up, I put away those childish things. I'm acting a different way now. But the beginning of the chapter is all about what love is supposed to look like and not supposed to look like. Uh, And so he starts the chapter off by saying things like, hey, if I could do everything in the world, if I could do all these great things, if I could speak in all the languages of the earth, if I could prophesy and know all the thoughts and heart of the Lord and communicate it to everybody else, if I could literally move mountains, but I didn't love other people, I would be completely worthless. The love is kind of like this pinnacle idea that I need for my life to be healthy and successful. And uh, you would be tempted to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, I did this one time as a kid. I turned there looking for how to be a better boyfriend. That's not a, it's not a good place to go because it's going like, to really leave you thinking you've got to do a lot of stuff you don't really want to do. Okay? So, but I go there and I'm like, how can I be a better boyfriend? I was a teenager and I'm like, how can I be a better So I'm studying through 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm reading and Paul, he kind of breaks into this list of 15 things that love is and love isn't, all right? And uh, none of them were things I'm good at. And I was like, that's real discouraging, you know? And I'm thinking like, oh, I'd like love to be like, you know, I could fall on a, a sword for somebody or take a bullet for somebody or defend somebody's honor or all this. But it wasn't any of those things weren't in the list, you know? In fact, the real definition of love doesn't even seem to be in Paul's list. When you look around the rest of the Bible, the real definition of love seems to revolve around this idea of being self-sacrificial for somebody else. Being willing to give up yourself, your own comfort, your own way, your own life even, for the betterment or the benefit of somebody else. Right? Jesus said, uh, no greater love does a man have that he would be willing to lay down his life for his friend. Right? So sacrificing your own life for a fellow soldier, a friend, your family, your family. That's like the ultimate illustration of what love looks like. Of course, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us. How? By sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. There's that idea again, that self-sacrificing of, you know, for the bene- benefit or bene- for the benefit of somebody else, right? That idea of giving up of you to make somebody else's life better. John writes it this way, this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his one and only son to be the King James propitiation, or if you read a more modern translation, the righteous satisfaction for God's anger. That Jesus gave up his life for us. So that seems to be the definition of love, but then you get to this list in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul writes, and it's none of that. It doesn't seem to define love the same way. That's because what he's doing here is not really trying to define what love is. He's trying to define what love looks like. And it's kind of where we miss out on it. So I'm going to come back to this at the end, but like, I don't ever doubt that my kids love me. But sometimes they don't act like they love me. Is that true? I don't really ever doubt that my wife loves me, but sometimes I think she's doing something just to get on my nerves. Is that true? yes, it's true. If some of you think my wife's like real nice and godly and all that, I'm telling you, that's still true. She is nice and godly. She's gonna listen to this later. But she also does things that annoy me. Doesn't make her the devil. Just makes it real, right? And so that's really what Paul's doing here. He's not trying to define love again. He's trying to say, if you really love somebody, this is what it should look like. And, And he lists a lot of things in there. I'm not gonna read them all to you. I'd encourage you to read back through 1 Corinthians 13 on your own, he lists all 15 of these things, and I can really sum almost all of them up into two categories of things. Let me give it to you today. Here it is. You ready? He sums them all up in this. Being willing to endure, enduring, and being humble, or having an attitude of humility. This is what love looks like. It's patient, it's kind, it's long-suffering, and, Does not brag about itself. It doesn't put his own needs before somebody else's needs. He lists all these things, but they really come under these two categories for the most part. That if you really love somebody, you won't give up. You'll endure. And if you really love somebody, you won't be bragging about yourself or putting your needs first. You'll be putting their needs or their desires or their wishes or their concerns above your own. It's not puffed up it's not proud it doesn't brag about itself it doesn't wish evil on somebody else no it's never giving up and it's always taking the lower position that's what real love is and that's what it's supposed to look like and the problem is i think yeah i I know my kids love me but sometimes they're not very patient they want what they want and they want it now Sometimes they're not very humble. It's all about them. When it comes to my relationship with the Lord, I don't think I ever doubt that I love him. I look around our room, I see a lot of people that I would say, they love the Lord. They love their church. They love their community. But sometimes we don't act like it. Sometimes we don't endure. We give up. Sometimes we aren't humble, we're proud and selfish. And that's really what this series is about. How do I take these key elements of my life, my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with his church, and my relationship with the world around me? And how do I not love them? Because I think most of you love those things. But how do I act like I love them? How do I grow up in my faith? How do I put away childish things and become a real man or a real woman? Let me show you that verse one more time. 1 Corinthians 13 11. When I was a kid, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a kid. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now Paul's writing this to this church at Corinth. It'd be easy for you to read that and think like, well, they're this church that's in the Bible. And so they're like, they're all, they're all really good people already. And so they're... You know, it's probably not a big deal for them to do this. That's easier for them to endure and to be humble and all of this. Well, then you need to back up and read the whole letter that Paul wrote to, First, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. Because I want you to know, if our church was like the Corinthian church, you'd all leave. You'd think we were a cult. You'd think I was the devil. I mean, you wouldn't stand for it today in our culture. I, I just went through this morning, actually, and made this quick list And I'm not gonna read these all to you from the Bible, but I'll give you the list. You can look these up on your own if you want, but let me explain to you what this church was like that Paul's writing to. In chapter 3, verse 21, we find out that they were bragging amongst themselves about who introduced them to Jesus. And they were saying things like, in our church, it would be like, well, Brad led me to Jesus, so my faith is better than yours. And somebody else would be like, well, David led me to Jesus, so my faith is better than yours. Well, Michael led me to Jesus, so my faith is better than yours. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? Why are you bragging about who told you about the Lord? The credit should go to God. But they were trying to take all this credit for like, somehow they were a better Christian because certain people told them about the Lord versus others. That doesn't sound like very mature people. Sounds like kids bickering about something that doesn't really matter. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, they were literally bragging about somebody's sexual sin in their church. There was a guy in their church that was sleeping with his mother-in-law. No, his stepmother. I messed that up. Sleeping with his stepmother. And if that weren't bad enough, the rest of the church was like, that's awesome. Good job. Cool. Some of you are ready to leave our church now just because I'm telling you about it. Like, we're not even doing that. You're like ready to leave. In chapter 6 verses 1 to 8, you find out that they were getting so angry at each other that they kept suing each other. Now how many people in our church would have to take you to court before you go to a different church? But that's what they were doing. They couldn't get along. They had no unity. They kept taking each other to court. In chapter 8 verses 11 and 12, you find out that they were all insisting On eating this meat that had been offered to idols even though these new believers were like finding it difficult to accept they're like how can I eat this meat that's been offered to some false god and the other believers were like "Ah, I don't care what you want I'm free to do whatever I want I don't care if it bothers you or offends you or not they just didn't care if they offended each other no kindness no putting the other one's needs above their own Chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, you found out they were coming to communion services at their church and some of the people in their church were eating up all the food. And I saw some of you trying to do that today. Shame on you. Shame on you. you trying to eat up all that food back there. But they were coming to communion services and some of them were eating up all the food and getting stuffed and other people were literally starving to death in their church. And at those same communion services, some of them were getting drunk. Come on now, put this church together. If this is our church where people are running around, sleeping with their stepmom, letting some of the people in their church starve to death, suing each other, coming in here, staggering around drunk. How many of you are staying in our church now? But wait, there's more. In chapter 12, verses 21 and 22, you find out that they were jealous and envious of certain spiritual gifts. They were saying to people in their church, like, if you don't have this gift that I have, you're not as good a Christian as I am. Oh, you're an encourager of people? You're not as good as me who speaks in tongues. You're very generous with your money? That's okay, but it's nothing like my gift of prophecy. I'm a teacher in the church, I'm way better than you. A bunch of kids. And then Paul writes them and he says, This isn't what love looks like. I don't doubt that you love each other, that you love the Lord. But you love your community, but I doubt the way it looks. It doesn't look like love. No, you've got to put away childish things like that. Grow up a little bit. How do you do that? You do that by not giving up on each other. Not giving up on the Lord. You do that by staying humble, putting everybody else's needs above your own, putting God's desires and commands above your own wants. That's how you really love. That's what it really looks like. See, I think the problem we've got in our world, in fact, you might be able to trace every problem we've got in our world to this, is we have a love deficit. Every war, every abusive situation, every drug abuse, every, uh, every divorce, every crime, you could probably trace it all back to a love deficit. Somewhere along the way, you kind of lost love. Maybe you didn't even stop loving the other person. Maybe you didn't even stop loving the Lord, but you just kind of stopped acting like it. I want to just say today, it's kind of time for us to grow up. It's time for us to learn how to have the love of a believer instead of the love of a baby. Can we do that together? I I don't know. Maybe this series won't be as entertaining as other series for you. Maybe it'll be a little bit more nuts and bolts. Maybe it'll be a little bit, can we look at God's word and teach through it together? Sometimes in our church, if I'm being honest, okay, I'm not calling anybody out specifically, but sometimes in our church, I feel this pressure. They're like, if I don't come up here and entertain you, you're not going to be happy. But can't there just be some times where we just open up God's word and study down through it together and just get the meat and potatoes? Paul even said that to these people at one point. He said, you're like babies. I can't even teach you the real depth of God's word. I gotta feed you like bottled milk because you're such a baby. Grow up. You can't even talk like that to your church today. They get their feelings hurt so bad, they all leave. Man, if if Paul came into our church and talked to us like he talked to the Corinthians, we'd all be looking for another church down the road. Our feelings would be so hurt. But can we do that during this series? Because I want us to grow up I want us to not just love people inside, but to really love people with the way we live. I don't want us to just love God in theory. I want us to love God in practice. I want you to not just love your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates when somebody asks you if you love other people. I want them to know you love them by the way you treat them. So can we study God's word together in this series? So to do that, Today, I want to look at Romans chapter 6, and I want to introduce you to this first of the three groups we're going to look at. How do I transition my life from being all about me to all about God, from me to you, right? And to do that, I want to look at Romans chapter 6. But I want to back up and give you a little context from Romans chapter 5 before we do that, so you'll know where we're coming from when we read through this. So in Romans chapter 5, and really reading the whole book of Romans would be so good for you. It's so rich theologically, it's so deep, it explains the human condition and God's uh, amazing plan of how to rescue humanity so well. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul kind of starts off by talking about the joy of our salvation that's been provided by Jesus' death and resurrection. That we're so blessed that we have this amazing freedom and joy available to us because Jesus died and rose from the dead for us. And then he kind of says, this is why you need that salvation, This is why you need rescue. This is why you need Jesus' help. And he compares Jesus to Adam, the very first man. And he says, Adam was born or created, and he sinned. And when he sinned, he brought sin into this world. And sin always brings with it death and decay. So, because of that, all of us are guilty of sin. All of us are dying and decaying every day. And one day we will eventually die. And we need Jesus to save us, to rescue us because of that. But then Jesus came on the scene, and he didn't sin. He lived a perfect life and said to us, I will die in your place. I will take all of the punishment you deserve. I will come back from the dead, and when I come back from the dead, that will be me defeating death. So once I come back from the dead, I break all of the power that death has over us that sin can bring to our life. I break all that power, and now I pass all that on to you if you will just simply believe that I'm enough. He's like, if you do that, you will be rewarded with salvation, freedom, peace, a brand new life. Then he ends chapter 5 by saying, God gave us his law, That's the Bible, right? God gave us his words for one reason. So we would know just how screwed up we are. Before we had God's word, men didn't even know how screwed up they were. But they still died because sin was in the world. They didn't even necessarily know they were disobeying a commandment from God, but they still did. So God gave us his word so we could look through it and not feel good about ourselves so that we could look through it and not use it as a bat to beat somebody else over the head with how bad they are, right? He gave us his word so we could look through it and come to this conclusion, I'm really messed up. I got problems. But then he says at the very end of chapter five, he says, but no matter how big those problems are, no matter how much the world and all of humanity kept doing the wrong thing, kept disobeying God's commandments, God's grace kept getting bigger and bigger. He kept forgiving more and more. Then you get to the beginning of chapter six, and he asks this question. And the question is this, well, if every time I sin, God forgives it. If every time I mess up, God has grace for that, then should I just go ahead and live however I want? Keep on sinning, because God's grace will just cover it, right? And Paul says, of course not. Of course not. It doesn't even make any sense You died with Jesus. Have you forgotten already what you did when you were baptized into Jesus? When you stood up in front of people and declared, I'm talking just to the Christians in the room right now, right? When you stood up in front of everybody at a baptism and you declared to all of them, what were you saying to them when you got baptized? Here's what you were saying. I'm dying to myself and I'm going to be buried just like Jesus was buried. You go down into the water. But if I'm willing to die just like Jesus died, if I'm willing to die to myself for the sake of someone else, in this case, for the Lord, then I too will be raised to life just like he was. So he says, go on sinning so you can get more and more grace? Of course not. Why would you die to all of yourself and all of your sin? Why would you experience a brand new life in Jesus? And then go back to the very thing that you gave up and surrendered to Jesus to get that new life. It doesn't even make sense. Have you forgotten what he brought you out of? What he's given you? Have you forgotten the freedom that you have? It doesn't even make sense. Since we died to our sins, why would we continue to live in our sins? All right, now if you're there with me in Romans chapter 6, the verses will be on the screen but I want to pick up his dialogue in verse 12. And I want to just read down through a few paragraphs with you as if I were sitting at home studying my Bible with the Lord just one-on-one, and I want to just talk with you like I would talk with him. Can we do that just for a couple minutes? Let's just understand the truth of this text, starting in verse 12. This is what he says. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires. Now, keep your eye out for how Paul has already, for us this morning, described what real adult love looks like. Remember what it looked like? It was enduring, it never gave up, and it was humble, it always put the betterment of somebody else ahead of its own, right? All right, see if you see these things, if you're an underliner, underline them, right? Don't let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to your sinful desires, right? Endurance, don't give up. You're like, you don't understand, but I make a bunch of mistakes. I still screw up. I became a Christian, but I still sin. Don't give up. Of course you still sin. The only perfect people are the liars. And they're not perfect because they're lying, right? So, of course you still mess up. But he's saying, don't give in to your sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God make god more important than me whatever he wants is what i'll do humility putting the other person ahead of me you see it real adult love instead give yourselves completely to god for you were dead but now you have new life so use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of god do what is right for my own benefit do what is right to get ahead in this life Do what is right so that person will marry me? No! That's pride. That's selfishness. That's baby talk. I do what is right for the glory of God. I get up and come to church on Sunday mornings not because I love you, and I do love you. I get up and come to church on Sunday mornings not really just for me. I get up because I want God to get more glory. I commit to a life group. I commit to a serving role. I commit to be kind to the people in my life who treat me like garbage. I don't do it because it feels good. I do it because I want God to get more glory, humility, adult love. You get it? He says, sin is no longer your master. He's gonna bust into this awesome illustration of master and slave relationship, okay? Now stay with me on this for a second. He says, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. You live under the freedom of God's grace instead. That's that same idea again, right? No matter what you do, no matter how you screw it up, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've declared him to be your Lord, and you've asked him to save you, then you get this new life. And no matter what I do to mess up moving forward, it can't be taken from me. Do you get it? Because I need you to know there are churches this morning in our county preaching the opposite. And there are churches all over this globe today telling people that the salvation God gave them can be taken away like that. But you don't live under the requirements of this law anymore. You don't have to walk around ashamed of what you've done or what you're doing. You don't have to walk around afraid that God will take his promises back from you. Because you live under the freedom of God's grace instead. The same idea comes up again. The same question he asked in verse 1. He's going to ask again in the next verse in verse 15. He says, Well, then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can just go on sinning? It's an important question. It's why he repeats it twice. Because a lot of us are going to be tempted to think that's what we can do. Hey, once saved, always saved. Anybody hear that around our county a lot? Once saved, always saved. And what they mean when they say that is, I'm a Christian because I prayed some prayer, so now I can do whatever I feel like doing. So since I get God's grace, and it set me free from everything the law says, does that mean I can just go on sinning? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not, Paul says. Now listen to his explanation of why you can't do that. Here's why. You ready? Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death and decay, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. We're not talking about your eternal destiny or getting into heaven. He's writing to a group of Christians that are already living under the freedom of God's grace, and he's saying to them, don't keep sinning. That would be so foolish. God freed you from all that. You can choose to sin, but if you do... It's going to lead to heartache, and death, and decay. It always does. But you have the power now to choose to obey God. And if you do, it will lead to a righteous life. The life that God designed you to have. The rewards that God planned for you long ago before you were even born. Do you see where he's going with this? Now, just in case you're thinking like, well, that makes sense, but he's probably writing to a bunch of non-Christians double down on this idea for you is he writing to a bunch of non-christians trying to convince them no turn from your evil ways and follow the lord and you'll receive eternal life that's not what he's talking about how do i know look at the very next verse he describes these people he's writing to he says thank god once you were slaves you once you were slaves of sin but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching that we've given you they're already christians you see it They still mess up. They're pretty immature. I read you the list of what they were like. But they're still Christians. I mean, if God doesn't take your salvation away from you because you're coming to church drunk and you're sleeping with your stepmother and you're suing everybody else in the congregation and you're jealous of what everybody else has and can do, what makes you think he's taking it away from you? And he goes on, he says, now you are free. Here's that word again, free. From your slavery to sin. And you have instead become slaves to righteous living. Everybody's a slave. The choice you get to make is who you're going to be enslaved to. Your sin, which leads to death and decay. Or the God of the universe, which leads to the exact life he planned for you. That's your choice. You say, but I don't understand, I messed it up. So you're saying I always choose the wrong thing? Absolutely. But that's why God's grace keeps getting bigger and bigger for us. It's so confusing. It's like I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing all the wrong things. It's like I want to obey God because I do love him, but I keep smacking him in the face and betraying him. Of course you do. what Paul is talking about here is salvation. But the problem we've got is we've only got one word for salvation in our heads. Salvation, salvation, it's this thing. But really it's like three different parts of one thing. Can I show all of them to you? Is that the last verse or one more? A couple more verses, Kenny? Let me read you the rest of this paragraph. Previously, he says, You let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. You, you see it? When I choose to be a slave to sin, I get deeper and deeper into my sin. It leads me to death and decay, right? Right? Now you must give yourselves, there's that idea again, right? To be slaves, adult love, sacrificing myself, putting the other person's needs before mine, not giving up. You must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to your sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. What's he saying? Before you decided to follow Jesus, you didn't even know you were living the wrong way. I see that all the time. I got friends like that right now. They think they're living just fine. They're not even under the obligation to do right. They're not one of Jesus's. They're just doing whatever they want. But he says, but now you are free from the power of sin. And you've become slaves to God instead. Are you talking about Christians? So you do those things. Not you could do. He says you do those things that lead to holiness and result And eternal life. And then kind of the verse everybody knows from this passage, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, decay, right? The outcome, the payment, the result of our sin is death, decay, heartbreak, heartache. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about salvation, but I want to teach you today what salvation really is. So it's really three pieces of one word. Here's the three words. They're big kind of theological words. Write them down if you want. Ignore them if you want. I'll tell you what they mean. Justification, sanctification, glorification. I'll tell you how I remember what all three of them mean, okay? But but let me give you kind of a quick definition of each. Justification is when God declares that you are 100% righteous. Sanctification is when God slowly is making you more and more righteous. And glorification is when God finally makes you 100% righteous. Now let's back up just for a second. Justification is that moment that everybody's preaching about in churches you've been in. Come to the Lord. Turn from your sins. Repent. Call out unto the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Salvation. Justification. And God looks down at me and he says, oh, they're asking me to save them. And they're believing that my son is their Lord. And that everything he did for them is enough. And in that instant, in that moment, God makes me a brand new person Gives me freedom and a new life. And he looks at me and he declares me righteous. I'm not perfect. If if you've become a Christian and then the next day you thought, I thought I'd be perfect, you've realized pretty quick, like, I'm still screwed up, right? So, because I'm not actually perfect in that moment, but now God looks at me and only sees Jesus' perfection instead of me. He declares me righteous. I am not righteous but he declares me to be righteous. Does that make sense? Sanctification is every day from that day till the day I die where God starts working on my life to make me more and more like Jesus, more and more holy, more and more righteous. And I never get there till I die. And when I die, or if Jesus comes back before then, I get glorification, which is when he makes me 100% pure, And righteous and welcomes me into eternal paradise. So, how do I remember these? Well, justification, I remember that by just saying to myself, justification is like just as if, it's kind of in there, just as if, justification, just as if I had never sinned. God looks at me just as if I had never sinned. Sanctification, how do I remember that one? Sanctification starts with an S, so I just remember sanctification means I'm set apart, I'm set apart to start living the life God designed me to live, right? To become more and more like Jesus each day. And glorification. How do I remember that one? Because like back in the old days, people used to say you're like going to heaven, you're going to glory. Anybody ever hear that before? I don't know. Am I too old for some of the people in the room? I don't know. They used to say you're going into glory, right? There's a new name written down in glory. There's like three people in the room that even know that hymn. So. <laughs> okay, so, but uh, yeah, glorification. So I get glorification when I enter into glory. When I enter into heaven, I am made 100% righteous and pure for the first time in my life. This is really salvation. Now listen, now hear this good because seriously, there are people all over our community that are gonna teach you the opposite from God's word. Not from God's word, but I wanna show you what God's word says. All three of these pieces of salvation you get instantly when you repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. When you turn to him for rescue. When you ask him to save you and you declare him to be your Lord, he gives you all three of these components of salvation. Just like that. Justification is realized in the moment. Sanctification takes my whole life to realize. And glorification isn't realized until I come face to face with the Lord. I get them all instantly, and they can't be taken away from me. They're mine forever. He's promised them to me. I just haven't realized them all fully yet. So I wake up every day, and I am justified. I am 100% righteous in God's sight. Not because I'm good, but because Jesus has declared me righteous, okay? But I'm still screwed up, because I'm not fully sanctified, So every day, God has for me this goal like Paul's been writing about in Romans chapter 6 we've been reading, that I would wake up and give myself completely to the Lord. That I would seek to obey Him. Because as I obey Him, I become more and more righteous. More and more like Jesus. And I'm going to mess up every single day. But don't worry, God's grace has got you. He doesn't think any differently of you. And when I mess up today, and I wake up tomorrow, my job is to not beat myself up about how screwed up I am. My job is to look into God's word and be like, I am messed up. Thank you for loving me anyhow. Today, God, I'm going to love you like an adult would love you. And I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep following you. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to double down. I'm going to keep giving you all I got. God, I'm going to mess up again today, I bet. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace that loves me anyhow. Thank you for your grace that gives me salvation despite all my mistakes and sins. But I won't go on sinning. I will keep trying to love my Lord. I will keep trying to love him like an adult would love him. I will grow up in my faith. And each day, he will refine my character a little bit more and a little bit more. And as I get older, here's what I'm learning. You ready? I'm not really any closer I mean, I can look back and see, like, I'm not quite as immature as I was when I was 20. But I look in God's Word, and I'm like, I'm so screwed up still. If I could look in God's Word and think anything differently, I would be robbing Him of the credit He deserves. But every time I look into God's Word, it's another opportunity for me to say to Him, thank you that you still love me, even though I'm so messed up. Do you get it? It's something I have to do every single day. That's what sanctification is. Here's how Jesus said it in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Can you skip to that? You got that? Okay. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross one time and follow me. No, that's, not, that's like a different version, I guess. He said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You hear that adult love in there? Give up your own way and take up your cross every day. What? Didn't you save me when I confessed, when I believed, when I repented? What, where's my salvation? Am I losing it? No, this is sanctification. Every day I got to wake up and be like, going to fight the battle again today. I know lust is going to be knocking on my door. I know anger is going to be right around the corner. I know greed is going to rear its ugly head again. And I might lose, but it's not going to be because I'm going to give up. I'm going to keep trying to love you, Jesus. I'm going to keep trying to put you ahead of me. And every time I mess up, thank you, God, that your grace keeps getting bigger and bigger in my life. This is sanctification Jesus is talking about. It's an everyday dying to myself and choosing God, no matter how messed up the day before was. So how do I become more sanctified? I I can sum it up for you in just two phrases. Let me give you the two phrases. You want to go home today and try to be more like Jesus, try to be more sanctified, try to get more of the life. You Become more of a slave to him. Embrace the freedom he's offering you, the ability to say no to your sin. Here's how you do it. You ready? Just two things. Start being honest about your own wretchedness. Wretchedness just like wickedness, sinfulness, right? Start being honest about it. Because the devil's greatest trick is try to convince you, oh, you're a Christian now. You're supposed to be getting better and better every day. So if you mess up now, you better not tell anybody because they'll think you're not really a Christian. Better not say anything about it. You better hide it. Hey, Adam and Eve, you better go hide from the Lord. Hey, David, you better try to cover up your sin. Pretend like it didn't happen. Hey, Pete, no way. I'm getting honest about it. Think about how screwed up you are. No way. I'm getting honest about it. Oh, man, I'm so screwed up. God, you see what I just did? I hate that about me. I hate it. Number two, be persistent towards your own holiness. Now, did we talk about these already or not? Do we talk about what adult love looks like or not? Does it, look, does it look a lot like not pumping myself up? Not pretending like I'm the best or I'm the greatest or I'm better than everyone else? Does it look like not giving up, but pursuing greater holiness, greater Christ-likeness, trying to be more and more the person God wants me to be every day? See, I think all of you guys in the room or most of you guys in the room, if I said, do you love God? You'd be like, yeah, I love God. I love him. A lot of times we don't act like we love them. We try to hide our wretchedness so we look good. Where in God's word does it say our job is to look good? We give up because it's too hard. I've screwed up too many times. I quit. That isn't adult love, that's baby love. If it gets too hard, I just throw a fit. I'll let somebody else do it. I quit. If it gets too real, I just walk away and hide. If it's too dirty, I don't admit it because I don't want people to think those things of me. You're blocking sanctification. You're becoming a slave to the sin that Jesus freed you from. And it's not just about heaven. Get it into your head. Salvation starts the day I surrender my life to Jesus. Eternity doesn't start when I die. It started on that day for me 30 years ago. And I've been new ever since, free to choose God's way. And I still make mistakes, but his grace is big enough for every mistake. It's this ongoing battle every day. One preacher wrote it down like this. There was a time when we were exclusively sinners. There will be a time when we are exclusively saints. But right now is a time when we battle as both. That's our day every day as a Christian. I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not holier or godlier than you. I got all the same struggles as the worst sinner you know. But I get God's grace. And it's always big enough to cover those problems. So I stay honest about my wretchedness. I keep pushing forward towards holiness. And I don't give up. I want to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher about 150, 180 years ago. Listen to how he described this. It was the custom of ancient tyrants when they wished to put men to the most fearful punishments to tie a dead body to them. With a dead body closely strapped to them, back to back, here was the living man with this dead person strapped on their back. They would force them to walk around with the rotting, putrid, corrupting smell of this dead body dragging it with them wherever he went. Now this is just what the Christian has to do. He has within him new life. He has a living and an undying principle and promise from God that is the Holy Spirit has been put in him. But he feels that every day he has to drag around with him this dead body, this body of death, a thing that to him is loathsome, hideous, and abominable to his new life as a dead, stinking carcass would be to any living man. That's what we're doing every day. I'm not perfect. I'm not better. But my imperfection doesn't disqualify God's promises. God isn't taking anything back from you. He isn't trying to punish you if you're free in him. He's giving you grace abundantly. See, love, real love, is humble enough to admit its sins and it keeps pressing forward and enduring to seek to please god every day this is adult love this is real love it's why i do things to please my wife i don't do things to please my wife so that she'll become more my wife it's ridiculous when we said we do we became all the husband and wife we were ever going to become I don't buy her flowers, take her on trips, say kind things to her, spend time with her so she'll become more my wife. I do those things because she is my wife. The things you do for the Lord each day when you obey Him and you try to follow Him, you don't do those things so that He'll love you more. You don't do those things so that He'll give you more heaven, that He'll give you more freedom. He gave you all the freedom He's ever going to give you. You do those things because He has given you those things, because He is your Father Do you get it? It's time to put away the childish things. It's time to be a real man or a real woman. That doesn't mean you get perfect. It means you get honest. It doesn't mean you get it all right. It means you stay humble. It it doesn't mean that you have mastered this experience that God wants us to have. No, it just simply means you don't quit trying. You keep at it. And I might fail tomorrow, but by God's grace... I will still live free. I won't hang my head in shame. I won't be held back by my past. I won't be dismayed by the things I do in the present. I will declare to everybody around me, I'm so wretched, but God's grace is so amazing. He's still got me. He's not letting go of me. Nothing can rip me out of the palm of his hand. He will go before me. He will fight my battles in place of me. He will never leave me or forsake me. What verse in God's Bible has you convinced that He's going to bail on you when you mess up? Because I don't see that anywhere in my Bible. I see God being faithful to everything He's promised to give me and do for me. That's salvation. Will you live that free today? It's time to put away our childish things. It's time to grow up, stop being babies. It's not cute anymore. It's not cute anymore, guys. Like, we need a church full of people that want to love the Lord, not people who want to come in and get entertained, not people who just want somebody to feed them. It's all good. I get it why we do all of it, and I want new people to come. I want people to feel comfortable and welcome. But goodness sakes, we need some adults in our church. We need some people who are going to grow up, and no matter how much they screw up and how many times they fail, they're just going to wake up again tomorrow and be like, I'm going after Jesus with all I got today. I'm giving them all I got, and I don't give them my money because I got so much to spare. And I don't give him my time because I have nothing else to do. And I don't help other people because I love them so much. I do it all because of him. Because that's what real adult love looks like. I want to give myself completely to him. Who's with me? Who's with me? I want our lives to be this all-out pursuit of Jesus and his holiness. To become more and more like him every day. Sin doesn't own us. We're free from it. We've died to it. I just want to leave you with Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It isn't about being perfect. It's just about dying to myself every single day, no matter how bad I screwed up the day before. Who's with me? I hope you're with me. We need a church full of adults that are loving God like adults love, not a bunch of babies that really do love him but just aren't acting like it. Are you with me? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. I hope that people that are here today, Father, did not hear condemnation from me. I just want you to be so great in our community. I want them to know what real freedom feels like. For the people here today, Lord, that are burdened by shame, would you give them ears to hear how much grace you have for them? And the people who are here have been loving you like babies. Would you give them the ears to hear it's time to grow up? And it isn't condemnation, It's encouragement to follow Jesus with your whole heart. No matter how bad we screw up the previous day, God, give us the courage to live out what we've heard from your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What an amazing challenge from God's word for all of us. We hope you start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. Be sure to subscribe to the 3SC podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.